We're now going to move to a second panel, uh, this one on intellectual property. Um, I was thinking during the, the first panel that uh, the, basically what we're talking about is it was a problem with regard to regional centers of innovation and how to make innovation happen in, in America that uh, the, the Congress wor worried about for 40 or 50 years, the first 40 or 50 years of its, uh, uh, of its deliberations. And uh, um, people who are interested in the history of American science policy know that they never quite were able to figure out exactly what the federal government ought to do about internal improvements and uh, what the role of the federal government was uh, until the Civil War happened. And then that sort of settled the question about whether the federal government would be involved in, in changing things inside the country uh, and its role with regard to the states. We're still worried about that. And I, um, for in, in, uh, in getting ready for this uh, second panel on intellectual property, I want to uh, call your attention to uh, something that I, a uh, quote I used from uh, in my introduction to the hard copy of Science Progress uh, from Jefferson. Jefferson, in his notes, re reflected on his years as uh, essentially the only person in the Washington administration who was uh, awarding patents along with the committee of the uh, cabinet. Um, maybe they had less to do in those days, so they, they, they helped him a bit. But he, he said that he was, when he was worrying about how to award patents, he said he was oppressed beyond measure by the circumstance under which he had been obliged to give undue and uninformed opinions on rights, often valuable, and always deemed so by the authors. So how do we... Uh, how do we award patents? Uh, how do we in encourage people to uh, think, of, think create in creative terms, reward them, but at the same time, as we like to say at the Center of American Progress, how do we also uh, concern ourselves with the common good? So uh, in, in that spirit, I'm, I'm happy to introduce uh, the, the chair of uh, this session, Dan McCurdy. And I'll tell you a little bit about Dan. Uh, he was uh, in August, last August, he was named the CEO of Allied Security Trust One, where he's responsible for management of the trust with particular attention to patent acquisition and global expansion of the trust membership. In addition to his responsibilities at the trust, uh, Dan is chairman of Patent Freedom, an online subscription-based service providing product companies worldwide with extensive information about non-practicing entities, NPEs, sometimes called patent trolls. It's sexier to call them patent trolls. And this is, as I was telling Dan, where the, the scales fell from my eyes on this question when I read his work. Uh, and a forum to identify and communicate with other companies defending themselves against patent assertions from NPEs. From June 2001 through May 2008, he was a founder and CEO of ThinkFire, which provides intellectual property advisory services to many of the world's leading technology companies and private equity firms. From March 2000 to June 2001, Dan was president of Lucent Technologies Intellectual Property Business, where he managed 300 employees who generated more than $500 million in annual revenues from the licensing of 26,000 worldwide patents. From February 1999 to March 2000, he was vice president of IBM Corporation, responsible for the creation of IBM Life Sciences Business Unit. When he rejoined IBM, before he rejoined IBM in 1999, uh, he was Vice President of Corporate Development for Siena Corporation, serving on Siena's Senior Management Committee and directing overall corporate acquisition strategy. From 82 to 97, he served, it doesn't look old enough to be doing all this, he served in a variety of business and intellectual property management roles at IBM, 
including Director of Business Development for IBM Research and IBM's Corporate Manager of Technology and Intellectual Property Policy Worldwide. Dan received his BA, summa cum laude, from the University of North Carolina and previously served on the Intellectual Property Policy Committee of the National Academies. So, Dan, thank you very much for moderating this panel. Still good morning. Uh, first thing I'd like to do is to, uh, is to introduce the, uh, the panel that's with us today. Uh, the first speaker will be Rick Weiss. Rick Weiss is a senior fellow uh, here at CAP, uh, where he focuses on science policy. Uh, Rick came to CAP from the Washington Post, where he had spent approximately 15 years as a science and medical reporter. At the Post, he covered a range of topics from medicine and health to engineering, material science, with a major focus on the ethical, legal, social, political, and economic implications of scientific advances and their public policy impacts. Uh, Rick uh, earned a BS in biology from Cornell University in 1974. And in 1985, he entered the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. He has written articles for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, National Geographic, Science, Discover, and other publications. He's won several awards, uh, including the National Association of Science Writers, Science and uh, Society Journalism Award, and the Science Journalism Award conferred by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, he has in the uh, publication that many of you have, and if you haven't, be sure you pick it up, uh, in Science Progress, uh, has written a paper uh, entitled Tackling the Challenge of the Patent System, Recommendations for the Obama Administration and Congress. Uh, we're very, very privileged and pleased uh, as the second uh, speaker uh, on the panel to have uh, uh, Judge Michelle. Uh, Judge Michelle was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit in March of 1988. On December the 25th, 2004, he assumed the duties of Chief Judge, a position he must relinquish in February 2011. Uh, Chief Judge Michelle has written over 300 opinions in patent, trademark, takings, contract, tax, international trade, veterans' rights, and government personnel cases. He is the recipient of almost innumerable honors and awards, uh, all of which I will not uh, attempt to enumerate here, including the Eli Whitney Prize, the Katz Kiley Prize, and the Jefferson Medal for Outstanding Contribution to the Progress of Science and Useful Arts. Prior to his appointment, Chief Judge Michelle served in the executive and legislative branches of the government for 22 years after graduating from Williams College in 1963 and the University of Virginia Law School in 1966. My favorite highlight from this portion of his career is his role as Assistant Special Watergate Prosecutor under Leon Jaworski, responsible for the Howard Hughes, B.B. Rebozo, Ro Rosemary Woods slush fund investigation. From April 1981 until March of 1988, he served on Senator Arlen Specter's staff, including as his chief of staff. Uh, since 2004, he has been a member of the, of the Judicial Conference of the United States, the governing body of the judicial branch, and since 2005, he has served on its executive committee by appointment of the Chief Justice of the United States. So Judge Michelle, welcome and thank you. Uh, the third uh, panelist is uh, Bruce Lehman, uh, who is chairman of the International Intellectual Property Institute. Uh, 
Uh, and Bruce, I'm going to, I have forgotten your most recent law firm that you've just joined. Whiteford, Taylor, and Preston. Whiteford, Taylor, and Preston. Uh, Bruce is the former president and CEO of uh, IIPI, uh, which is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization based in Washington. Uh, he is a member of the Policy Advisory Committee of the Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, the specialized United Nations agency headquartered in Geneva. He is president of the U.S. Committee for WIPO and is a member of several corporate boards. From August 1993 through December 1998, Bruce served as Assistant Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Commissioner of Patents and Trademarks. As the Clinton administration's primary representative for intellectual property rights protection, he was a key player on these issues both domestically and internationally. At the request of the President, he served concurrently in the fall of 1997 as acting chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, which fosters and recognizes the work of America's artistic and creative community. In 1994, he was the, na uh, the National Law Journal, the largest uh, selling weekly publication for lawyers, named Bruce as its Lawyer of the Year. In 1997, another publication, the National Journal, a Washington-based national magazine of public policy, named Bruce one of the 100 most influential men and women in Washington. Uh, Bruce also has written a paper that is in the publication Science Progress uh, that I mentioned uh, on global patent protection, and I would urge you to be sure that you take a look at that. Our final panelist is Artie Ray, who is the Elvin R. Laddie Professor of Law at Duke University. Uh, Artie is an expert in patent law, law and the biopharmaceutical industry, and health uh, care regulation. Her current research, funded by the NIH, focuses on intellectual property issues raised by collaborative R&D in areas ranging from synthetic biology to drug development. She has published extensively in these areas and continues, of course, to do so. Professor Ray joined the Duke Law faculty in 2003. In the winter of 2007, Artie was the Hyken Visiting Professor in Patent Law at Harvard Law School. In the fall of 2004, Artie was a visiting professor at Yale Law School. Prior to joining Duke, she was on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania Law School where she was also a visiting professor in, fall, in the fall of, of 2000. From 1997 through 2001, she was a faculty member of the at the University of San Diego Law School. Uh, Artie graduated from Harvard College, magna cum laude, with a BA in biochemistry and history, history and science, attended Harvard Medical School for the 1987-1988 academic year, and received her J.D. cum laude from Harvard Law School in 1991. While in law school, she served as executive editor for the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review. So welcome to all of you. With that, I'm going to make a few opening remarks, and then I'm going to turn it over uh, to Rick. In creating the patent system, the founding fathers did not envision they were creating a new sport like racquetball where if a patent were a ball, it could be pounded around a court. Indeed, the opponent initiating the game could pick the most favorable racquetball court to gain an advantage. With each new whack at the ball on that court, he would continually improve the ball into a more perfect weapon, 
with which to defeat his current and future adversaries. Rather, the Founding Fathers had something much more precise in mind. They envisioned a grant of a right whereby an inventor could stop others from ripping off the money he was entitled to to earn from a product successfully introduced to the market through his creative genius. Many would argue a patent is like a real property right or like gold or jewels, but it is not. It is an intangible asset created by government for a specific policy purpose to fuel innovation that would drive economic expansion. If the patent system is warped in a manner that inhibits that objective rather than promotes it, unlike land or gold or art or other tangible assets that have intrinsic value, the existence of patents can be taken away with the stroke of a few pens. I think that this concept is often overlooked in terms of the debates that are occurring today. In fact, some argue that the patent system has outlived its usefulness. I disagree. Clearly, there are areas where improvements could help better align the patent system with the public policy objectives that were contemplated at, the, at its creation. Some of these improvements, it seems to me, have proven controversial in the policy debates in Washington over the last few years. And for the life of me, I cannot understand, at least with respect to some of them, why these debates cannot be brought to an end. The first is achieving greater precision in patent claim construction. Now, I've spent the bulk of my career in very big companies. And I, I, I say that this one is one where I understand the controversy because patent holders and patent applicants want to have their cake and eat it. So let me give you a specific example. In the case of big companies, the lawyers within the company, the patent lawyers within the company, and those that are trained to serve them as outside counsel, frequently want the broadest possible claim construction that could ever be conceived of with respect to any given invention. It isn't that they envisioned all of these things in the actual product that they're going to make and put into the market, but the idea is to have the broadest possible claim construction so that it, you have an asset that is arguably the most valuable if you want to try and apply it to some other uh, product or service that wasn't even envisioned by the inventor at the time that the, that the patent was conceived. So if that is what companies and other patent applicants want to achieve, they want it obviously for their own purposes of value, but what they don't want is for those broad patents to be then used against them when someone comes knocking on their door. So this kind of, of schizophrenic behavior, in my view, has to be reconciled if Washington is ever going to make progress with respect to patent policy. The second would be uh, that courts, in fact, could achieve uh, 
some of this by actively enforcing this concept. So in Markman hearings, by way of example, uh, in the interpretation of a claim, uh, limiting the claim to precisely that which was conceived uh, and that which is described in the patent uh, as opposed to overly broad interpretations. Again, uh, the third that has had, has had considerable debate is one that I call the fair economic contribution rule. So if I conceive an element of a later, bigger system uh, and want to enforce that patent, should my damages be related to the entire system of which my little element might be one or two or three percent of it, or should the value actually be something part of the entire system, even though a tiny fraction of what I conceive that this system actually uses uh, is, uh, is used in that system? Where is the right and fair damages question? <clears throat> Finally, I have written and spoken a lot about uh, so-called patent trolls. Uh, and most of what I have written and spoken about has been negative with respect to the impact that I believe that non-practicing entities are having on the patent system. So maybe for the first time publicly, uh, I do want to say the following. I think that there is uh, a current useful role that uh, non-practicing entities uh, are actually able to play uh, in the patent system. And that is by giving smaller patent holders uh, a voice uh, with respect to uh, how others might be using their invention. Because without that, there is less of a voice that a smaller patent holder uh, might otherwise have. That said, uh, I think it's like every other patent holder. Whenever uh, a non-practicing entity or a practicing entity is enforcing a patent, I believe that reform that would allow uh, this particular uh, practice to focus on truly valid and infringed patents as opposed to uh, 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 patents which are asserted which have very questionable validity and whereby the alleged infringement is also highly questionable. Uh, one mechanism to do that that has been discussed and I think needs further discussion is to allow uh, successful defendants in patent cases, and I will go one step further, uh, to allow successful plaintiffs in declaratory judgment actions uh, in uh, patent cases uh, to uh, actually uh, 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 receive uh, uh, their legal fees uh, from, uh, the, uh, from the plaintiff and or defendant, uh, depending upon whether it was a declaratory judgment action or in the normal course. Uh, with that, as I hope uh, some of those comments will stir the pot a little bit, since one of my objectives as moderator is to be sure that none of you are bored, uh, I'm going to turn this over uh, to Rick uh, for his comments. Rick, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I'm going to summarize for you the recommendations that CAP is releasing today with regard to the topic of patent reform. But before I do so, I want to give uh, a brief introduction to the topic of patents generally and to some of the principles that underlie the recommendations we're going to make today. I know there are a lot of legal eagles in the audience who are very familiar with these principles already, but one of the points we want to make here at the center 
um, is that this is not a topic just for experts and lawyers and, and lobbyists. And, and, and lobbyists. The, the phrase patent reform might make eyelids droop in some circles, as I can say they did just the other day when I tried to pique the interest of the editorial page editor at the Washington Post in this topic. And he was like, oh, patent reform. Um, but, but really, you know, it, it's a topic that ought to be of interest to a wide array of people, especially in times like these during our economic downturn when it's so important to be thinking about how to get investment in innovation and uh, new money into new energy sources and, and infrastructure and so on. And to understand what the connection is there, you have to really understand a little bit about what the patent system really does. Um, one part of it is the part that Dan has already mentioned and the part I think people are most familiar with, which is that a patent um, gives an inventor uh, a, a certain degree of market exclusivity over his or her invention, usually for 20 years, which encourages, uh, which by assuring some kind of uh, return or chance of return on your invention, uh, encourages investment uh, in innovation and ingenuity. But there's another aspect to the patent system that I think some people are not as familiar with, which is equally important. And that is the requirement that if you want to get a patent, you need to describe your invention in detail for the world to see. You need to describe it at a level of detail uh, uh, tight enough so that someone skilled in the art could go ahead and do what you did. And the purpose here, of course, is, is to provide a public platform of everything you've done up to that point, not so others can copy you, you're protected there, but so that others can make improvements and go from that point to the next point to create this next generation of device in that family. Compare what happens in that scenario to the other major means of protecting your intellectual property when you've created something, namely trade secrets, keeping secret how you accomplished what you accomplished, which might do as good a job of allowing you to keep control over your invention, but leaves everyone else totally in the, in the dark, forces other innovators to start from square one to reinvent the wheel. If we're talking about really trying to speed innovation and get this, roll, this, this ball rolling, uh, the best way to do that is through a patent system that demands public disclosure. And it's important to keep that in mind as we talk about the recommendations that we're going to go into, that that is the, uh, the overall goal that we want to get at here. It's not so much a matter of trying to come up with a system that says to the inventor, that allows the inventor to say to him or herself, I've got mine. It's about getting a system going that really uh, propels the innovation and investment and ingenuity system forward. One other piece of background that uh, everyone here should know if, if you haven't been embroiled in this topic already is that Congress, of course, last year tried very hard to pass uh, a comprehensive patent reform legislation. They failed to do so after not being able to reach consensus on a few key points. They're going to try again this coming year, and we hope that they are successful. And our recommendations uh, include a few recommendations to Congress, which I'll mention in a couple of minutes. But I think it's important to note that there are some very important and potentially powerful administrative changes and improvements that can be made right within the Patent Office itself that I want to focus on a fair amount. They can be changes made unilaterally by the Obama administration and the Patent Office, uh, which would greatly improve the system. And to give you a sense of how important that is, let me just quickly spell out a few of the problems that now encumber the patent system that are uh, sort of residing within the patent office, essentially. First of all, as many of you know, there's a backlog of patents right now, the patents pending issue, about a million patents. Uh, 
applications waiting to be reviewed. Uh, and on average, it takes something like three years now to get your application reviewed and a decision up or down. This is a problem not only because it slows the process down, but it, it slows it down in more ways than you might think. L since that leaves a lot of uncertainty in the system about what's actually going to be protected and what isn't going to be protected, it stifles uh, the, the sort of inspiration that others might have to try to get into a new area and, and do more. It puts a lot of people on hold while we wait to see what the landscape is going to look like. The rules governing how patent examiners should do their work have not really changed in decades at this point. Examiners still have the same 21 hours to try to get a handle on all the prior art relative to a uh, new invention and to figure out how the new thing might be different than the old thing, uh, even though inventions today are clearly far more complex than they were decades ago. The information technology system that the patent uh, examiners use is very antiquated and not up to the job and gets in the way of doing good prior art searches, and the salaries are out of step with the private sector. All this adds up to a patent office that is a frustrating place to work if you're a patent examiner, and in fact, the average patent examiner leaves the patent office about three years after getting there, which is just about the amount of time it takes to become proficient at this job. Um, further, the patent office is wholly dependent on user fees for its operation. Now, that's fine, except for the fact that it doesn't have full control over its own budget and finances. It's at Congress's mercy. Um, and in fact, Congress has not been shy about periodically dipping into the patent office's piggy bank and taking some of those user fees out for use elsewhere in the government to the tune of something like $750 million over the last 10 years. It's been better at this in the last few years. But still, to not have uh, a modicum of control over your own budget is a real problem for the office. Now, to solve these and other internal problems, most overarchingly, we can say that the patent office needs to be run more effectively, more efficiently, more collaboratively with stakeholders. Uh, it must, in short, be run more like the kinds of businesses that it is meant to inspire. Now, probably the single most important thing that the Obama administration could do right off the bat to get this process of improvement started would be to appoint a highly skilled director with professional managerial experience. And notice I'm not saying necessarily a patent lawyer. We're talking about a manager who really can run a large office with this kind of a mission, empowered with a clear mandate to apply best business practices to every aspect of the PTO, the Patent and Trademark Office. More specifically, the office must modernize its wage and fee structures, its application review policies, and its IT system to attract and retain the best examination staff. And at the same time, it has to initiate, it ought to initiate work sharing programs with other patent offices in other countries. If you think about it, there are patent offices all around the world, most of which are examining the same exact patent applications for their own offices and for their own countries or regions. This is crazy. There are uh, many expert panels have come to the same conclusion. There have been pilot projects started. There needs to be large-scale work sharing among different patent offices around the world to get this work done more efficiently. Keep in mind that the goal behind all these recommendations for the patent office is to improve patent quality. That is to ensure that the vast majority of patents that do issue are not seen by others as unworthy or overstated, which is a situation that brings expensive court challenges and more uncertainty about where the boundaries of the intellectual uh, property regime end 
and of course, as I've mentioned earlier, ends up stifling investment in these areas because of the uncertainty. As a matter of policy, the Patent Office needs to make clear that it will not grant patents that are not supported by what the inventor has actually shown. That sounds kind of obvious, but it isn't the case today, unfortunately. Separately, the PTO needs to repair the rift that's grown between itself and the stakeholders that it serves, the corporations, the inventors, and the public that it serves. It should enact policies that incorporate input from stakeholders, something the, uh, that the office in most recent years has not been good at. It should offer better access to patent data and relevant court decisions. It should open to the public its advisory committee meetings. Now, just a sentence here about the concept of converting the patent office to a government-owned corporation, which several expert groups have recommended in years past. It's CAP's conclusion that although there would be certain advantages to making the patent office a quasi-independent government-owned corporation, perhaps most obvious among them that it would have full control over its budget and the Congress would not be able to raid its piggy bank anymore. Um, we think that there are some real advantages to keeping the PTO within the family of government offices and agencies. And unless uh, the efforts we're talking about here really just completely fail, uh, we ought to try to keep the, uh, the office within, within government for now. There are more detailed recommendations that we have in our report that you can read and we can discuss in the question and answer session. I just want to spend the last couple of minutes talking about what Congress uh, needs to do. One thing uh, that uh, Dan made passing reference to is the issue of venue shopping. That is the process by which plaintiffs try to have their cases heard in jurisdictions that have ostensibly nothing to do with uh, what the case is about, but that promise the highest odds of a favorable and generous judgment. This is, a, system, this is a, uh, a procedure that biases the system, it forces defensive corporate behaviors, and it's counterproductive to the principles that I talked about earlier. Congress should also work with the Patent Office to create new ways of dealing with post-grant opposition, looking at uh, cases where patents that have issued need to be looked at again. And importantly, it's going to have to try to hammer out some kind of a compromise on the issue of how to value inventions that are components of other inventions, as Dan mentioned, as many of you know, this is one of the big controversies that came up and unre unresolved in uh, Congress's efforts last year. It's a difficult question to settle, but uh, it's got to be settled, and I can tell you that if Congress does not resolve it in its next effort, I have the feeling that uh, Judge Michel and some of his colleagues on the bench uh, stand ready to step into the breach and solve it for them. Finally, let me just mention that applicants uh, for patents have a responsibility in this process as well. Uh, now, this may sound naive, but what the hell? It's a new administration coming in. Everyone's feeling uh, pretty enthusiastic. There's a lot of goodwill in Washington right now. And uh, so I think it can, you know, CAP can be forgiven uh, for having as one of our recommendations an exhortation to patent applicants to get reasonable, uh, if, I, if I may just put it simply. Uh, and especially not just to the applicants, but to their attorneys, famously aggressive and overreaching patent attorneys, to not claim more than you have invented, to recommit yourself to clarity in your applications, to disclosure and cooperation, as the Patent Office must do as well, so that the inspiration and the perspiration of America's innovators can again go to work for the advancement of technology in this country. Thanks very much, and I'll pass it on to Judge Michelle. Good morning, everyone. I am very delighted to be here. I want to commend the Center for American Progress for uh, 
promoting and producing this session. As many of you know, there was a, a precursor session in October, which also uh, is very commendable. Uh, I read in the newspapers under the topic of patent reform uh, and hear through um, other sources about the uh, confrontation among corporate stakeholders uh, in the halls of Congress over the last several years. And I think that the contrast uh, uh, represented by this meeting and all of you here in the back of the room as well as the very distinguished panel in the front of the room uh, shows a, a, an excellent model that uh, hopefully will be uh, followed uh, widely. Uh, that is, of course, this meeting is entirely open. There are all kind of different viewpoints here. Uh, record is being made by uh, audio and visual equipment. Uh, everyone has a chance to hear what everyone else is saying and react and agree or disagree and state their reasons or facts uh, in support of whatever their position is. It seems to me this is a, a much uh, healthier, more open, more democratic, and more functional way to try to debate how to improve uh, the patent law than uh, lobbyists uh, and secret meetings and Capitol Hill offices and uh, PAC contribution considerations and uh, public relations firms uh, and all of that kind of thing. Of course, there's a role for that. That's also part of democracy. But there's a very important role for, uh, for open discussion as we're having here today. Um, I also want to uh, commend the Center for the production of this very, very excellent book. I see some of you have it, but anybody who doesn't have it, they're, they're available on the table just outside of this room. So be sure you get it on your way out. Now, I've had the privilege of reading the last four essays uh, in this book uh, over the last several days. I got, got a sneak uh, preview. Um, and I, I suggest to you that, at least in my opinion, they're extremely high quality and very filled with wisdom and balanced uh, thoughts. Now, uh, my uh, role here is uh, actually fairly limited because obviously I'm not in the legislature, I'm not in the patent office, I'm not in the White House. Uh, uh, I'm uh, in a courthouse on Lafayette Park uh, where the Federal Circuit uh, resides. I happen to currently have the privilege of being the chief judge of that court, as you heard. Uh, we are 12 full-time judges, uh, four part-time so-called senior judges. Uh, we have a highly experienced court. We have one new member who joined us two years ago, but uh, everybody, everyone else on the court uh, has been uh, on the court for extended uh, periods, in most cases uh, several decades, and in nearly every case, roughly a decade. So highly experienced court, uh, in my own personal opinion, it's a rather well-balanced, highly diverse court, uh, and it's a court that is constantly learning and evolving itself, just as the law needs to constantly uh, evolve and learn from what happens on the ground feeding back into the legal system. One of the intimidating features of being a court of appeals judges is that you read lots of opinions uh, uh, and you write some. Uh, and then you see later uh, how they're apparently understood or at least allegedly understood by some other people and it's often a shocking experience. Because very often uh, a case is said to stand for a proposition that I absolutely guarantee you was nowhere in the contemplation of any of the three judges on the panel. But some statement, a little out of context or a little carelessly worded, uh, uh, becomes a, a source of trouble. So we, that's part of our craft is to try to minimize the careless or harmful dicta. We work hard at that. But we're not perfect any more than anybody else, so some slips through. But, but that's part of our, uh, of our overall effort. 
Now, I would um, suggest that uh, much of what uh, Dan McCurdy and Rick Weiss have said so far uh, seems entirely uh, realistic and appropriate uh, to me and desirable to me. Uh, some people apparently view the, the courts as being in the way here, but, you know, when you talk about patent reform, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit was created by the Congress in 1982 uh, to engineer a kind of patent reform compared to the status quo in the, in the previous decades, which proved to be highly unsatisfactory and was thought to be the cause of a lot of uh, industrial and technological uh, losses in this country in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So uh, I consider that the court uh, uh, has been involved in patent reform since its inception in 1982. So we're going on 27 years in this business and we work at it very hard. Now there are probably seven major uh, fault lines uh, or points of controversy uh, in the substantive patent law as it's applied, particularly in the district courts. Um, as, as many of you may know, uh, the Federal Circuit stands astride three streams of cases that come to us for appellate review. The largest is from the district courts, 94 district courts covering the entire United States. Uh, that's the bulk of our work, patent infringement cases and the mirror image uh, declaratory judgment cases. And of course, they also involve issues of validity and enforceability as well as uh, infringement. Second stream uh, is the patent office because a disappointed applicant has a right to appeal to an internal administrative board which is within the patent office and if still dissatisfied, they have a right under statute to come to the Federal Circuit and get review and upwards of 100 uh, of those cases come to us uh, uh, every year. Um, and third, we review the work of the International Trade Commission. You say, well, what does international trade have to do with patent law? But actually, it does have a role uh, and, they, and it actually tries, much like a district court does, a steady stream of uh, several dozen uh, patent cases a year. So we get the review of them as well. So because we stand astride all three of these streams, we have a rather comprehensive picture of what's happening out there, and it changes. I happen to have been on the court myself now for uh, going on 21 years, and uh, it's quite clear to me that what happens uh, in litigation in earlier tribunals has changed quite a lot. What's happened in science and technology, of course, has changed quite a lot. And the same with business economics uh, and uh, methods and models of using intellectual property. Uh, so it's a constantly changing picture. Uh, seven key issues, damages, venue, interlocutory appeals, eligibility to even apply for a patent, obviousness, injunctions, and willfulness are, are, the, are the seven issues. And on all of those issues, there have been significant changes uh, on a regular basis over the last two or three years, both at the Supreme Court level and in our court. In fact, uh, just uh, less than two weeks ago, we issued a mandamus order which will sharply curtail the venue problem as it existed in eastern Texas and uh, other places. We have upcoming a Microsoft damages case which may provide an excellent opportunity to clarify the law having to do with the so-called full market value rule that uh, Dan alluded to. Uh, so a lot is going on. Some recent cases you know about, the Seagate case on willfulness, uh, cases following on the Supreme Court's KSR case involving obviousness in our court. Again, follow on cases dealing with injunctions after the Supreme Court's uh, innovations in the eBay case, uh, and on and on. So uh, we have uh, 
an ongoing opportunity to uh, help in this process of trying to improve the patent law, trying to optimize the balance that everyone agrees uh, is the goal we, we all uh, jointly uh, seek. Uh, but we need a lot of help in doing this because uh, we can't resolve any issue unless it's properly lit litigated below and brought to us in a careful, effective manner. Many of you in this room are engaged in that enterprise. We appreciate your insight. We also gain uh, great uh, uh, insight and perspective from the work of scholars such as Artie Rye and Mark Lemley and many others uh, uh, who uh, file amicus briefs but who also pour out articles in a very prolific way which we try to uh, read as much as we can uh, given the load of uh, briefs. So that's what we're involved in. We appreciate the efforts uh, of others and I particularly like the uh, emphasis Rick Weiss uh, puts on the sort of new spirit. The country really faces daunting challenges uh, uh, and it can s succeed much better with a cooperative teamwork approach where everybody pulls together and that's what I think we're trying to do here today and I'm delighted to be part of it. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dan. Uh, I have an article in the uh, publication that is being distributed. And my focus uh, in that article really is on, and was asked by the Center for American Progress, really to focus on the international patent system and its relationship to the U.S. patent system uh, and make some recommendations to the incoming administration. And that's what I've attempted to do. And uh, you really can't uh, uh, separate the uh, problems associated with the international patent system from the domestic problems. Even some of the very uh, arcane problems having to do with uh, examination in the patent office. And that's where I'd like to start because it's not particularly ideological. Uh, it's just very practical, but it has a big impact uh, on uh, the ability of this uh, country uh, and other countries really to produce an uh, issue uh, of truly solid patents uh, that uh, serve the purpose of the patent system in a timely manner. Uh, the USPTO, and that was uh, I, uh, you know, one of the first points uh, that has been made, is extremely stressed right now. And obviously, if we have patents uh, that don't get issued until five years after uh, the invention is made uh, in this rapidly evolving technological environment, the patent system isn't going to have uh, a lot of meaning other than the use of patents as uh, by non-performing entities uh, uh, of the type that Dan was talking about. So that's clearly not what uh, Thomas Jefferson and the founders of the patent system had in mind. So we've got to get the situation at the patent office under control. And if you look at my article, I think what you'll see is that uh, the the reason, the, one of the primary reasons that we have a, a huge burden on the patent office today is the globalization of the patent system. I think a lot of people think it's because, well, we're producing a lot more technology. But actually, I think if you really get into the statistics, you'll see that the growth in technology is relatively constant. Now, granted, there's additional pressure as a result of the expansion of patent subject matter. But the biggest single impact on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and other large patent offices in the world is really the globalization of the economy and the patent system. 
Today, virtually every multinational company must file patents uh, simultaneously in the important economic jurisdictions, the important economic markets. And the U.S. is the most important uh, of all of these, not only because we're the largest, but also because patents are more important here because we are a highly competitive society uh, and we are very litigious as well. And so you're much more likely to end up in court and the patent is going to be a much more important problem. And so what we see is that uh, uh, just between European and Japanese applications, we have about 27% of the workload of the patent office. Uh, and those are all patents that are being uh, simultaneously filed in two other jurisdictions that have very advanced and very sophisticated patent systems. Uh, and in spite of uh, a long period of time, going back to my tenure as the head of the USPTO, we've been having discussions about so-called work sharing. As a practical matter, there is no real work sharing. At best, maybe a thousand patents are, and, and, I, and that may be uh, an overestimation, are actually experiencing work sharing, and that's all still on an experimental basis. Now, my article goes into the reasons for that, and it's primarily because the USPTO does not get the work product, the search results, from these uh, other offices in time to effectively be able to use it and therefore take away from our examiners the burden of doing some of that work. And that's because these uh, two other major systems have systems of deferred examination where basically they wait around for us to do the work and then they proceed. And we have to address that problem and I pointed out some ways in which we might do that. Now another uh, solution that we might have to this, and it also goes to some of the structural issues about the USPTO that are raised when we talk about a government corporation, and that is to think of creating a multinational patent office uh, that also will sit aside uh, the, uh, the, beside the, the uh, USPTO and be an alternative for uh, American applicants. Now, Europe invented this a long time ago in the form of the European Patent Office, I think back in the 1960s. Uh, and uh, I don't know, Europe would be much more stressed, I think, technolo technologically today had they not created the uh, European Patent Office in the 1960s, but they didn't do away with the other national patent offices. You basically have two paths that you can use, and so it tends to be that small businesses and individuals and so on tend to go to the National Patent Office, but the multinationals uh, that create the kind of problems that I just described go to the EPO. Uh, and the patents are still issued by the national authority. Under national law, they are litigated, although there are attempts to change that in national courts, uh, in spite of the fact that there's been a lot of harmonization in, the, uh, EP, in, the, uh, in Europe in the intervening time. Now, we could do the same thing uh, with regard to the United States. We could create an international patent office that would be an alternative, but unlike the EPO, it wouldn't have to be a 20th century patent office with thousands of patent examiners located in a specific location. It could virtually be a virtual patent office with a very small central staff uh, employing the absolute best new technologies uh, and very uh, 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 strict quality control uh, and it could be easily set up under the auspices of an organization such as the World Intellectual Property Organization in Geneva. 
This would not even require, by the way, a new treaty or a modification of a WIPO treaty. Of course, for the U.S., to recognize these applications, it would require uh, a, uh, a legislative change. This would create an alternative route, uh, and this new entity would be free of many of the restrictions that we've heard about uh, that are uh, inherent in, in the USPTO right now as a government agency. And of course, it would be fee-funded, and those fees would tend to be paid by the large entities that would make use of it, but they'd get much higher quality. By the way, there would also be another big advantage for this, and this is one of the problems. I've been doing a lot of development work with developing countries for the last 10 years. And one of the problems of the international patent system is that it is basically a completely two-tiered system. About eight countries in the world uh, account for over 80 percent, maybe it's even 90 percent, of all of the patents that are issued. Everybody else is left out. This means that in most of the rest of the world, including some very important emerging developing, develop, developing country markets, you basically have no infrastructure, you have no expertise, you have no capability. You don't have lawyers, you don't have businessmen who even remotely understand how to, file, how, how to identify patentable technology in, in terms of an invention disclosure system within their technological enterprises. You don't have the capacity to, uh, to uh, file internationally in the world's big markets where you need to operate, and you don't even have a clue about how to license or monetize the technology. So it's no wonder that there's a big dispute about the importance of patents between emerging developing economies and the highly developed economies, such as the United States. And there's a big effort uh, on the part of a lot of these countries to basically uh, push back on the very high levels of patent protection that are contained in the TRIPS agreement, which is uh, annexed to the WTO treaty. So an international patent office like this would actually make it much easier for people from uh, these developing country markets to go to a place like Geneva and actually get global patent protection themselves and would help uh, a lot in addressing that problem. That segues into the other uh, theme in my paper, and that is uh, the substantive problems in international patent law. Now, some of them are very technical, things like first to file and, and as opposed to first to invent and, you know, the uh, uh, grace period that we have here in the United States of 12 months in order to file a patent application after you publish. Those are very important issues. And one of the reasons they're important is that the failure to harmonize them prevents us from dealing with some of these much more important substantive issues about whether people are really going to protect patents, what is going to be the role of patents in the international economy. This is important to the incoming administration because uh, uh, President-elect Obama made it very clear in the campaign and, and this is consistent, by the way, with recommendations that have also been made by this Center for American Progress in the last few years, that a lot of the economic growth that we expect in this country is going to come from what back in the Clinton administration we used to call sustainable development. That is, sure, new uh, kinds of automobile propulsion systems, for example, uh, green technologies are going to cost more money, but they will also create new jobs and a whole new level of economic growth. And where are those technologies going to be developed? They're going to be developed here. 
government is going to fund and assist and promote uh, the development of some of these new technologies. Well, if we make those investments here, but then we don't have the capacity to uh, to amortize those investments through exports abroad because we don't have effective patent protection and the inventions are expropriated from us, then we're going to have a problem with this model of economic growth. Nowhere do you see that problem more clearly than in uh, something that's really right now on the at, the at the beginning phase, but that is the attempt to revised to revive the whole Kyoto process in the form of the UN Conf uh, a Framework Conference on Climate Change, where there is a major push by a group of leading developing countries, uh, such as Brazil and India and so on, to basically apply compulsory licensing regime to, uh, to green technologies that are needed to address gas house, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Now, obviously, if you could compulsory license all these things, there wouldn't be much sense in investing them. So it would be catastrophic, ultimately, to the goal of effective uh, solutions to climate change. It also would run counter to what appears to be the emerging economic strategy of the incoming administration. Having said that, we have to, and in, in these international negotiations, one criticism I would have, even going back to my time in Clinton administration and certainly in the last eight years, we cannot expect to have effective appreciation for our intellectual property rights if we don't have some sensitivity to the concerns of these developing countries. And obviously, one of the big issues in uh, the upcoming climate uh, change negotiations are going to be that these are going to be very expensive technologies, and we've got to put them in place, in some cases, in very poor countries. So how do we do that? Well, we're going to have to develop new business models. It's not just going to be a, a, a patent situation. First of all, if you compulsory license the patent, in some cases, uh, you wouldn't be able to carry the technological know-how necessarily even effectively use the patents. So we're going to have to have a system of subsidization that goes along with uh, the, uh, uh, hopefully, a strong patent system. And when you look at the various proposals on, you know, uh, trade and uh, carbon caps and so on and so forth, I think that points you uh, in the right direction. So those are my observations, and maybe in the discussion I have a lot of ideas about how the USPTO should work and some of those things, but those are my uh, attempts at a contribution to this program. So I, too, want to thank the Center for American Progress for putting together such a wonderful panel and um, creating such a wonderful event. The openness of this discussion that Judge Michelle pointed to, I think, is a, is a very welcome development. Um, I have, I should state as a caveat um, before I begin my substantive remarks, I have done some work on PTO-related issues for the President-elect's transition team. However, and this is important, however, the thoughts I'm expressing here are entirely my own and should in no way be attributed to the President-elect's transition team. My brief remarks are going to focus on what might be called, what I have called, and actually in a forthcoming article in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, the PTO's troubled quest for managerial control. 
Joel has attributed, uh, alluded, excuse me, to some of these issues already, and I want to talk about them as well, and I hope we can get into uh, discussions about the substantive issues that Judge Michelle and others have alluded to in the Q&A, but in these brief remarks, I'll focus on the managerial control issues um, to which Joel has already alluded. It's obvious that the PTO has a management problem, and we've all heard now several times about the backlog questions. Um, this is really important for all the reasons that people have discussed, um, but also for emerging companies. I had an opportunity just a few weeks ago to talk to some VCs at Kleiner Perkins, and they did talk about the T word, the troll word, and NPEs and all that, but they talked a lot about delay and backlog at the patent office, which I was surprised about because VCs in Silicon Valley don't necessarily know the intricacies of the PTO. Um, but for them, it's very hard for them to invest in green technology companies when they don't know whether those particular companies will ever get a patent issued and, ha and or how long that process will take. So um, this is a real problem for innovation of the type that, that we hope to see in the next uh, administration. Now, I have a somewhat unusual perspective on the management problem, a little bit different from, I think, that of any of the other panelists. Um, in addition to teaching patent law, I teach administrative law. Before becoming a professor, I actually defended agencies at the Department of Justice in the so-called federal programs branch, which defends challenges, important challenges, to administrative regulations. From my perspective as an administrative law professor, the PTO's management problems re represent a real anomaly. Interestingly, we've already talked a bit about the ways that substantive patent reform has emerged in the last few years through cases like KSR, the eBay case, um, the Bilski case. The Patent Office has actually been involved at a very significant level in those cases through its involvement with the Department of Justice's Office of the Solicitor, Solicitor General. So it, even though it doesn't have what's known as substantive rulemaking authority, which is a, a touchstone for a really powerful patent, um, uh, excuse me, a powerful administrative agency, it has actually had a lot of power in the substantive area. Ironically, in the procedural area, it has had much less power. Um, and that's iron really ironic from the perspective of an administrative lawyer because there's a a long line of Supreme Court cases, um, most prominent of which is called Vermont Yankee, that says agencies should have the ability to control their own procedures um, because, you know, they know a lot about what's going on in those, in those agencies, the administrators of those agencies. And in the case of the PTO, as some of you may know, we're talking about more than 9,000 employees, more than 6,000 patent examiners. This is not a small organization. It's a very, very complex, large, highly unionized, I might add, organization. So let me add um, to those observations just a couple of points regarding why the PTO has had such trouble exercising managerial control. Joel has discussed the ways in which we hope the PTO will be able better to exercise managerial control in the future. I want to note from an administrative law standpoint a couple of reasons why we can't be entirely sanguine and then conclude by suggesting some ways to rejigger administrative law to perhaps help us be more sanguine in the future. We, Many of you in the audience who are IP professionals know that the PTO has tried to exercise more managerial control in the last few years, um, principally through some very contentious rules that 
try to limit the number of repeat applications that applicants can file. These rules were recently struck down by a district court as being substantive rulemaking, um, not procedural rulemaking of the type that the PTO is authorized to do, but substantive rulemaking. Now that sounds very boring, and to some extent perhaps it is. But the way the district court opinion was written arguably suggests that a lot of what the PTO could do in terms of managing its own internal procedures might be characterized by some disgruntled individual, and remember it only takes one individual to sue, as substantive rulemaking. Um, that doesn't bode well for an agency that needs to really, in the future, take control of its managerial problems, of which it has many. So I, I worry about this decision. I think it's a far-reaching decision um, that could have been a lot more minimalist. It could have restricted itself to just saying the rules were impermissibly retroactive, which they arguably are. Again, we don't need to get into technical administrative law here. But there were lots of ways judicial minimalism would have been the, the more appropriate route to take um, in that case. And fortunately, the district court judge did not choose to take that route. Um, and so one cautionary um, note about what a future director will be able to do. Um, in the context of these continuation rules, um, people argued, and there are lots of flaws with the rules, I, I should note. I, I'm not endorsing the substance of the rules. I'm just um, raising concerns about the way that they were struck down. Um, some argued that, well, why not adjust all of this as a private sector organization would do through fee-setting um, procedures that would discourage certain types of behavior, such as excessive repeat applications. Well, that would be wonderful if the PTO had fee-setting authority, which it doesn't. And um, in point of fact, as people have noted, it um, struggles even to keep the fees that it currently collects. Um, so again, P the PTO is very unlike a private sector organization from, um, from a lot of perspectives, including the fee perspective. A third cautionary note, um, in the private sector, there are lots of ways to use carrots and sticks to manage one's workflow. So tiering um, is one um, route that a lot of private sector organizations take. It's a well-known approach to workflow management in the private sector. For example, in the patent context, one might be willing, one might suppose that it would be a good idea to give those who are willing to do their own searches of the prior art, the prior invention that's out there, um, a speedier examination. Um, and the PTO has tried to do this through a mechanism called accelerated examination. However, because there is this doctrine in the courts right now of inequitable conduct, many, uh, which basically, according to the patent applicants, to whom I've spoken, penalizes people for really revealing much information at all about the prior art out there. Um, uh, people are very reluctant to use accelerated examination. And in general, the PTO's ability to manage its workflow is really impeded by this doctrine of inequitable conduct. And from an administrative law perspective, again, that's really peculiar that an agency couldn't control the standards, its own standards, for determining what constitutes fraud on the agency. I think there's a good argument to be made that the courts should defer to the agency's own determinations of what constitutes fraud with respect to patent applicant behavior. So these are cautionary notes from the perspective of an administrative law professor about reasons why the patent 
office is going to have some difficulties or some challenges in operating like a private sector organization that efficiently manages its own workload. Having said that, let me end on an optimistic note and say that good leadership will help a lot in this area, uh, particularly with respect to issues like labor uh, slash union relations. Um, and if fee-setting authority is given to the PTO, um, that probably will help a great deal as well. I look forward to your questions. Artie, thank you very much. So uh, I'm sure you've noticed that I have consciously chosen to allow the panelists to spend a little more time in their introductory remarks uh, than uh, the agenda called for, but I thought that it was important as the basis for uh, the continuing discussion. Um, to make up for that time, I'm going to do away with the panel asking questions of itself uh, and open uh, this up to questions from the floor. Uh, in the event there aren't any then, which I would be shocked, uh, then I'll, I'll bring it back. Uh, question here on the aisle on the right. Judge Michelle uh, Scott Rafferty, uh, my question is about the court, which you've said is a very essential element of patent reform. How many vacancies do you anticipate coming up in the next Congress, and to what extent would retired judges be willing to take on a full caseload uh, and continue as senior judges if uh, the confirmations weren't uh, immediately forthcoming? And do you think that's going to affect the, the values of, uh, of long tenure um, uh, or that you, you mentioned uh, during your remarks? Uh, I think that experience helps a lot. Uh, so the court is blessed by having a highly experienced complement of judges now. We have uh, four of the 12 active judges who are eligible to retire today, but have chosen not to. And within two years, there will be uh, three more. Uh, and I've predicted, and it's entirely speculative because colleagues don't announce in advance uh, to the public or even to the chief judge what their plans are. Uh, but uh, based on a reasonable estimation, at least I think it's reasonable, uh, uh, I would say that the president-elect will fill between three and six seats on the federal circuit. That is in the next four years. Um, uh, I think it's, there's a good chance where, that there'll be one or two within a year of today, uh, and there's a good chance that there'll be another one or two within about a year of that. Beyond that, a little hard to predict. Um, I don't think that uh, Federal Circuit confirmation hearings, with one exception, have proven to be very controversial or uh, ugly events. So I doubt that there are many uh, uh, lawyers interested in being on the Federal Circuit who are deterred because of the prospect of, of a contentious or uh, invasive uh, confirmation hearing. Uh, I do think, and this uh, sounds a little self-serving, of course, but I do think that the salary uh, is a problem uh, for those in private practice because patent lawyers uh, tend to make very uh, high salaries, uh, and many of them have, you know, children in college and so forth. So I think the, uh, the, the failure of the Congress to um, uh, keep up with inflation over the last uh, uh, 15 years has resulted in about a 24 percent uh, purchasing power decrease for federal judges. I think that is a problem. Uh, I doubt that that will be resolved anytime soon. Uh, so the pool of talent uh, uh, available will probably come primarily not from private law firms, but hopefully 
uh, there'll be enough people, even in private law firms, uh, who've made enough money or otherwise uh, uh, can afford it to uh, consider coming on the circuit. I uh, mentioned diversity. I think the more diverse, the better. Uh, in the second row, yes. Uh, my name is Chris Gallagher, and my uh, question is for Rick Weiss and uh, uh, Mr. McCurdy. Um, if you were here for the last panel, you would have heard um, a long explanation as to why the government should become involved in early stage innovation in regional clusters involving universities, tech transfer, startups, applied research institutes, and so forth. All of whom, as I understand Mr. McCurdy's definition, are NPEs. So while we've taken trolls out of the lingo by changing the definition, we haven't found a way yet, to my knowledge, to redefine the enemy, if that is the enemy, uh, as, as someone other than a university and applied research center. And so, so I'm wondering how you plan to address that and whether you think it's even possible. And if so, where will the venture capital come from needed to develop these entities? I'll let uh, Dan get into the details on this, but I believe we did make an effort, and I hope the wording survived in the final uh, report, to to not lump uh, educational institutions in uh, with all the, the worst characteristics of some of the NPEs. There's a, there's a role to be played there. Baidol, uh gives them an opportunity. They tend to be uh, pretty good from what I've seen uh, in terms of getting some licensing and, and making things happen where there's uh, product to be to be made, so I don't think we ought to be using too broad a brush here. Um, but you're right that the you know the the, the, uh, the definition of an MPE can be can be quite broad and include some people who I think actually want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Dan, if you've got a specific recommendation, um, you know it, it, it's always uh, somewhat of an issue um, in terms of defining you know what is a troll. Uh, my definition of a troll or a non-practicing entity in polite words uh, is a simple one, which is it's an entity that derives or plans to derive the majority of its revenue from the licensing and enforcement of patents. Uh, and that certainly does not mean that it's a, you know, a research institution uh, or a university or most other entities of that sort. They derive or plan to derive most of their money from tuitions and funded research and grants and all kinds of other entities, but not from the, patent, the licensing and enforcement of patents. And the proof of that is if you look uh, to Autumn, uh, which uh, uh, is the Association of University Technology Managers, Technology Transfer Managers, uh, it is a minuscule portion of virtually every academic institution, notwithstanding maybe the desire that is derived from licensing-related revenues. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's my solution to the problem. Uh, let's see, I had one question. Sure, please. I want to apologize, Rick. I, I don't. I have a friend named Joel Weiss, and so, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I do apologize for that. Um, as a representative of an academic institution, let me make a declaration against interest and say this, that universities, generally speaking, are pretty good about when they seek patents, and they tend to seek patents when necessary. However, there are cases where our universities do seek patents, particularly in the information technology area, where they're probably not necessary for purposes of technology transfer, 
because the research itself has already been publicly funded. So the rationale for the patent is technology transfer. And I think we could do, the National Academies is actually studying this right now. Um, we could do a better job of thinking very carefully about where, you, where publicly funded research merits a patent and where it does not. By the way, uh, with Artie, of course, being at Duke, uh, there is a very famous case, uh, Mady v. Duke University, uh, where I did an article exactly on this this point, which is if universities got to the point it got to the point of wanting to actively enforce their patents, then uh, it is always possible that other patent holders may decide that they want to actively enforce their patents against the research of universities. Uh, as a mechanism of counter-assertion to defend themselves against active assertion. So it's an interesting problem. So a footnote in Judge Rader's opinion. <laughs> uh, uh, right, he, let's see, uh, let me go back here to the right and then I'll come over to the left. Uh, Joe Bartlett, uh, Cornell Business School. Uh, did I miss it? Uh, uh, maybe you covered this, but my understanding is the problem with patent reform is the biotech industry against the information technology industry. How's that one going to come out? Uh, who wants that one? Artie, that sounds like a good one for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, the, one of the problems is that, yeah. So, so in the area of substantive patent reform with respect to damages, for example, um, that's an issue with respect to the legislative um, venue. Um, now, it may be that one of these cases that Chief Judge Michelle and his colleagues here at the Federal Circuit will resolve that issue um, from a judicial perspective. And so we don't need to worry about the, the lobbyists on each side in Congress. I mean, there, clearly it's, there, there, there have been debates on numerous issues, in, including uh, on this, uh, you know, what, what became known in the last debate, this apportionment of damages uh, problem where there is this discussion that exists between the high-tech industry where, you know, frankly, in a given high-tech advice, literally thousands of patents might be used in a single high-tech device. Uh, and if every one of those were entitled to a royalty on the entire value of the system, uh, the consumer, I think, almost certainly would be harmed. Uh, it would be a very, very expensive uh, 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 device if all that was passed along to our system, if that was passed along. Uh, in the biotech and pharmaceutical world, uh, these kinds of, of, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of patents being used in a single compound or biotechnological invention uh, may not be the same. And so that is, I think, a lot of what was created. Now, having said that, I, I remain optimistic and hopeful that at least some of this is more in semantics than it is in substance. Uh, and I think with some continuing dialogue, uh, this, this issue uh, can be bridged. And if it isn't bridged uh, in the Congress, uh, I am uh, reasonably confident uh, that the courts will ultimately step in uh, to this problem. You know, the, the courts already have stepped into this problem. It's a little uh, upsetting for me to hear people describe the law as being something ex extremely different from what I understand the law to be reading and writing all these decisions. It is already rather clear Federal Circuit law, in my view, that in order to justify using as the base for reasonable royalty damages, the patent holder has to prove that the uh, one component of the, out of the 10,000 is the reason that for the consumer demand for that product. 
and where th that can't be proven, and it rarely can be proven, uh, the full value of the computer, so let's say $3,000, cannot properly be used as the base of damage. So I think this problem is uh, partly based on mythology from people uh, taking uh, case law and twisting it into a pretzel. And I think that the courts uh, not only have already partly solved the problem, but it, it, it won't be much longer before uh, the courts will have the opportunity to stamp out uh, pretzel twists. Can I just add something to that, Dan? Yes, please. Uh, I, <clears throat> I think sometimes it's lost sight of that uh, the last major patent reform bill, the most important patent reform bill of the 20th century, was uh, I think the 1952 Act, which was uh, basically put forth as a result of a study by the American Bar Association and the um, man who later became chief judge of the uh, uh, Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, Giles Rich, was in charge of that effort. But that act, as I understand it, was largely a codification, a statutory codification of the case law previously. And so uh, it may well be that we could go back to that model <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and it would take some of the pressure off people in Congress if um, we have some law that uh, uh, emerges uh, and is already starting to emerge from uh, the judicial system that will be relatively easy to codify. One point as well that in the process of uh, coming to our recommendations here at CAP, we held a roundtable a few months ago. Some of you out in the audience were part of that where we had representatives from a wide variety of uh, patent-interested uh, industries, including IT and pharma and biotech, ones that are traditionally considered to have opposing interests. And, and they did have a few opposing interests on a few key issues. But what was really, I think, most impressive to those of us who, who organized this was just how much common ground there was for the vast majority of change that, changes that everyone agreed need to be made, including uh, a lot of emphasis on changes that need to be made and could be made administratively within the PTO itself. So while you're right that there are remaining issues like this that are going to have to get worked out by Congress or the courts, uh, I don't think people should lose track of the point that uh, 80 or 90 percent of the problems that came up when we discussed and, and studied this issue, everyone's pretty much on the same page about. But that, uh, the availability of injunctive relief, uh, I, I'm not a patent uh, litigator. Called eBay uh, versus Merck Exchange, that is now being developed in the lower courts. It was a Supreme Court case that dealt with that issue. So, as promised, I'm going to move to the left side for one question, then I'm going to take a question from the gentleman standing on the right side. So, uh, yes, you would, in the center, it's hard to, I don't know your names. <laughs> I just have to point, I apologize. Hi, um, I am Victor Goldberg, just an individual here. Um, let's say that and it happens that an invention happens uh, many years, let's say six years ahead of its time before it starts producing any revenue. However, there are uh, Byzantine uh, fees from the patent office that after a few years you need to pay for, to renew the validity of the patent, which the inventor either has to remember or hire a law firm to follow up. Why don't to charge upfront whatever needs to be charged and uh, let it be so 
the, val the validity of the patent doesn't die just because of an issue that is purely bureaucratic. The uh, approximately 67% of all issued patents are abandoned by the last renewal uh, uh, fee. Now, part of the reason I believe that there is uh, this, this payment system in place is because at the time an applicant makes a, uh, a patent application, while they all think that they have the most beautiful baby at that point that's ever been born, uh, in fact, uh, babies uh, sometimes don't grow up to be very pretty at all, uh, and people don't want to continue to pay for them. And so uh, uh, you can imagine a, a circumstance where uh, if there was to be one fee paid and you had to guess which ones were going to be successful and those that were not, uh, the fee that you initially paid for the uh, granting of the patent might be substantially higher, in fact, than it is today, uh, which nobody would, they, everyone would scream about that as well. Uh, so the system, I believe, uh, was put in place to allow uh, uh, patent holders to decide over time which one was, in fact, going to be a valuable patent and which one was not. And yes, it's true, you've got to remember to make the payment, much like you have to remember to do many other things, including paying other bills that come to you. But that, in fact, is uh, the way the system operates. I don't know if anybody else has comments on this or not. Um, just one note. I entirely agree with Dan about the rationale for maintenance fees, um, which is the fees you're referring to, maintenance fees. There is an issue about whether the fee structure as currently organized in the Patent Office is m the most economically efficient way to do things. It's, that wouldn't entail eliminating maintenance fees, but it might entail rejiggering fees a little bit because the maintenance fees right now are the fees primarily that cover the cost of the filing and examination. Um, so there's a cross-subsidy that may not be optimally efficient from the standpoint of either applicant behavior or PTO functioning. Can I say that, that those maintenance fees along with the two-tier system, the uh, subsidy for uh, small businesses and individuals and not-for-profit organizations which get half price was put in place in, uh, as I recall, 1980 when I was working on Capitol Hill for precisely, you know, that reason to address these kind of problems. And, you know, to some degree, you're never going to be able to completely solve the problem that was raised. You can just try to make things more equitable. But I really think if you look at the costs of patent prosecution, they tend much more to be attorney's fees or patent agent fees than they tend to be the uh, fees of the, uh, uh, you know, of, the, of the patent office or the various patent offices. Uh, gentleman on the right, thank you for your patience. My
question um, uh, is uh, how patent reform might address uh, uh, an issue where uh, individual and small inventors uh, would have uh, still strong recourse uh, when uh, when a company, a product producing or services producing company, particularly larger companies, might take that uh, that invention, uh, and I believe uh, the questioner said willfully uh, infringe uh, that uh, that that patent. Uh, so how would uh, how would patent reform assist this? Uh, does anyone on the panel have a comment with respect to that? Well, I think that there's, um, if, if you'd like, there's a, going to be a conference on Wednesday on uh, at the Brookings Institution on issues, some of those issues, um, with respect to whether what large corporations typically do is willful infringement or independent invention. Um, there's going to be a panel on that specific question. There's, unfortunately, it's hard to gather data on that point, but there is some emerging data on the extent to which. Um, because there have been a lot of assertions and counter-assertions with respect to willful infringement on the one hand, which is one assertion that's made, on the, and the large corporation will counter and say, no, we didn't willfully infringe, we independently invented it, and we tripped up against this patent. And there's some emerging data on the question that I think can help elucidate the issue. Yeah. One thing I think we should try to observe as a guiding principle in the ongoing discussions toward patent improvements, patent reforms, is that the system ideally should work for everybody. It needs to work reasonably well for everybody. Independent inventors, universities, private research institutes, big companies that make products, small companies, emerging companies, etc. And it's got to work for all technologies. A patent system that's great for drug companies but terrible for computer companies or vice versa obviously is not going to be a satisfactory patent system. So in all of our uh, pet proposals, and I guess we all have have some, including me, uh, one of the things we should ask ourselves, I suggest, is, well, will that work reasonably well for the whole array of players in this system? I completely agree. And with that, I can't think of a more fitting statement uh, than to thank all of you for, uh, for coming to the event. Uh, and a uh, few of us will be perhaps around for just a minute or two uh, in the events you want to try and catch us as the meeting ends. Thank you very much. Thank you.